Good morning, church. What a joy to be together. I am hyped. I'm hyped for today. We're starting a new series. We've been talking about this, I guess, for a couple weeks. But um, I'm excited for us to get into this. We're calling this series the, the Gospel Story. And the idea behind this is that, you know, the gospel is a story. But it's a formative story. It's a story that becomes this lens through which you can look at the world around you, right? That, that lets you understand and make decisions about your actual life in your everyday, like as you leave this space. And there's, there's importance to that, right? And that, that story essentially is laid out in this, right? That God's word is Bible, preserved for us, teaches us his story. All those things, like that's, that's kind of this like basic, yeah, I'm a Christian, I get that piece. The catch to it is, this book is kind of, is kind of confusing. And, and I, think, I think there's this like little bit of us as good church people and Christian folk who are like, I'm not supposed to admit that, right? I'm not supposed to actually think that. But the reality is, this is a really big book that has a whole lot of stuff in it, and a good chunk of it is confusing. I don't know if you've ever done like the read the Bible in a year plan that they hype everyone on every New Year's or whatever. Like there's a point... When it's 6.30 in the morning and you have your Bible and you're working through the book of Numbers or something and you're going, this is the divinely inspired, inerrant, supernaturally preserved word of God. And yes, this morning there were 37,000 Levites living in Gagash. Cool? Right? It's just, it's just a strange thing. And it's something that I feel like oftentimes we're uncomfortable admitting. But the reality is it's true. Listen, guys, our God is complex. So his revealed word is complex. It takes intentionality. It takes thought to engage it. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is our discipler. He's the interpreter of the word. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who preserved it. He's the one who guides us through it. And all those things are beautiful and true. And that's why we're doing this series. So I had a youth pastor growing up, a guy named Donnie Smith. He wrote this book called The Nine which is a really intense title, but he has this line in there where he says this, it doesn't matter where we pick up the scriptures. All roads lead back to a relationship with God. The truth is that this book, although it's complex and sometimes it's confusing, it does tell one unified story, the story of the gospel, a formative story, a story that makes sense of reality, a story that tells us what God is like, what the world is like, what we're like, our place in it, and how those things interact. It's an important story. One of my prayers for you as your pastor, and honestly, one of our explicit goals in this series it's for you guys, as followers of Jesus, to be able to pick up the word of God, and regardless of where you find yourself in that book, to be able to get your bearings and understand where am I in the story and how does this point me to the sweet, loving, gracious face of my Jesus? Because the reality is that's true. The entirety of this book, the entirety of this story points to Jesus. Now, when you're sitting there thinking about 37,000 Levites who live in Gergigesh, it may take you a couple minutes to think through and get there, but I promise you, I promise you, that is how God set up his word for us. So over the next seven weeks, 
We're going to walk through kind of the chapter headings of the gospel story. We're going to walk through each piece. We're going to talk about the creation. We're going to talk about the reality of sin. We're going to talk about the promises of God. We'll talk about the law of God. We'll talk about the person and the work of Jesus. We'll talk about the living and active kingdom of God. And we'll talk about the eternity of God, that is heaven. This will span us from cover to cover. We're going to start today in Genesis 1. We'll end in Revelation. And again, the point of this is to help us get the larger picture, the larger story drilled into our heads for two reasons. Helps clarify the word, helps us engage the word with more more confidence, but also, and I would say more, more importantly, more like core to your person than that, guys, the gospel story is formative. It's formative. You don't graduate past it. You don't get to a point in your faith where you go, gospel done. Now I get to move on to the other things of faith. No, 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 no. The gospel is the road upon which you walk in the journey of faith. It's a daily part of connecting to the person of Jesus, of living a life of faith. It's connecting to the gospel story, contextualizing your life and your experiences through the lens of the gospel story. It is a vital part of seeking after Jesus and seeing, seeing your faith come alive in the here and the now. To move your faith from Sunday mornings at church and whatever night of the week you go to gospel community and your like devotional book that like you say you read but it kind of sits in the back of your toilet most of the time. Like to move beyond that to actually considering Christ in your work and with your children and with your grandchildren and with your neighbors and with your friends and in the struggles and doubts and hurts that you have. Like the gospel is what gets you there. Daily, regular interaction, thought, meditation on the gospel story. My prayer is that we would get there as a church family. That would be how we live our faith. So, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 1, it's where we're going to be today. If you have trouble navigating your Bible, I'd encourage you to open to the table of contents and go one page to the right. <laughs> That's such a terrible joke. Uh, if you're in this space today, by the way, and you don't have a physical copy of the Bible. We're really passionate about access to God's word here at Emmanuel. There are house Bibles underneath the chairs kind of scattered throughout the rows. I'd encourage you to grab one of those. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, feel free to take that one home or talk to one of our pastors and we'll get you a nicer one. As you're turning there, I do want to make a quick point to kind of set up what we're talking about today. If you're like me, if you grew up in or around the evangelical church in America, there's a chance that it, that it feels a little off or feels a little, little maybe, maybe just we're using the terms wrong to connect the creation story to the gospel story. Some of us are, are, are used to thinking, hearing the phrase like the gospel, the gospel story, and we think of that in terms of like maybe the way a simplified gospel is presented in like a Sunday school or a VBS, right? This idea of like, well, you're a sinner, but God is good and gracious, and he made a way for you as a sinner to be connected with him, and that's the person of Jesus. And so you trust in him, and, and you receive salvation, and your sin doesn't keep you away from God. Now, here's the thing about that shortened understanding of the gospel. That's true. It's true and it's beautiful, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But one of the things I want to challenge us with is that it's actually important to know the whole story and to begin at the beginning. Because if you don't begin at the beginning, you lose some of the context, right? It makes it make less sense. When I was a kid, I was into Star Wars, as you do. 
Dad, my dad is here. I'm about to implicate you in a crime. And so I apologize for that ahead of time. But it's too late. <laughs> so when I was a kid, my dad used to uh, record movies off of TV. And like when we'd re- rent them, he would like had do the dual VHS thing. You know what I'm talking about? To build up our movie collection. <laughs> And so we'd have these blank VHS, like these six-hour blank VHSs that would have three random movies on them, just totally disconnected that my dad had recorded off the Saturday morning movie or whatever. And so this was our, the majority of our movie collection as kids growing up. And we had Star Wars Episode Six: The Return of the Jedi. And as a young child, I believed that was all of Star Wars. <laughs> It was the only one I had. And it, by the way, it wasn't even the whole movie. It was like the made-for-TV edited version. And But my dad is like, I'm brilliant at this. He would watch the movie, and he paused the recording during the commercial break. So, like, it skipped. It was great. But anyway, this made-for-TV edit of Return of the Jedi, that was 100% of my experience of Star Wars. Now, if you are even slightly familiar with the Star Wars story, I want you to imagine trying to understand the overarching story of Star Wars. Wars beginning in episode six, right? It starts with Han Solo already frozen in carbonite, starts with Luke already a Jedi with a robot hand. It starts out in the desert. There's a big slug. It doesn't explain anything. There's this guy disguised as someone else. You don't know who he is or why, but here's the deal. That's all I had, right? And I was cool with it. Didn't even care because I was a kid and there were space wizards with laser swords and like spaceships, right? Like it was all good, didn't care. But here's the thing. I had no concept of that larger story. No concept. I still to this day remember the moment sitting in my grandma's house when I learned there were other Star Wars movies. (laughs) And the two of them preceded the one I'd watched a million times that explained everything. (laughs) Oh, man, that's funny. And, you know, it's even funnier to think that that was actually episode four and five, not one and two, so there was even more story. But but you get what I'm saying, right? I, I had this piece, and it was fine. It was a great movie. It did what those movies are supposed to do. It entertained children, right? That was a dig on you adult Star Wars fans. <laughs> but... Looking back on it, I can easily see how I just, I had zero context to understand the majority of the important plot points at that point. I was in it for the action, but I had no concept of the interactions and the relationships and the characters because I missed the beginning, right? The same thing is potentially true when you start the gospel story at sin. It's not that it's not true. It's that it can, actually, it can actually become dangerous or destructive to our faith because it takes sin out of the proper context. If you understand the reality of sin and the way it separates people from God without putting it in the context of God's good and perfect creation, it can actually lead to some false assumptions about who God is and how he considers you and your place in the creation. It's actually really important to tell the whole story and to start the story at the beginning, which is what we're going to do today. So Genesis 1, I'm going to read us through the first couple verses of chapter 2. This is a good long text, so uh, jump into this one with me. I'm going to get my page turn prepped here. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and there was in the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So he made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called that expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning. Second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation. It produced seed-bearing plants according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening came and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas. Let the birds multiply in the earth. Evening came and then morning The fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Wildlife, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, the whole of the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth and every bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made 
and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, I just ask that you would speak to us this morning. Give us open hearts, give us open ears, or give us open minds to hear from you afresh, to consider what it is you might have for us, Lord. And for those of us who this text already is pushing our buttons because of different theological convictions and social arguments and things back and forth, God, I pray that you would push those things to the side, that you would give us tender hearts, that we would hear what you have for us today, Lord, that we would be ready to receive the truth of your goodness, the truth of your gospel, and that each and every one of us would leave today encouraged by you, convicted by you, and drawn closer to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. There's so much good for us in this text today, but to get there, I think we have to start by addressing the elephant in the room. Genesis 1, I think, is one of the most culturally controversial passages of Scripture in our space, in our time. It hasn't been historically But right here, right now, in North America, in the Western church, Genesis 1 is one that carries a lot of cultural controversy. And it essentially comes down to this. What are the mechanics of creation? And is this text meant to be read as literal history or as allegorical poetry or wisdom literature? Right? And if you've, if you've been in the church for more than 10 minutes, you've probably heard some version of this debate and this argument, right? Did did God create the earth 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days? Did God work through evolution? What what is going on here, right? And in one of the stereotypes, one of the stereotypes of Christianity in our culture, in our time, is that Christians are anti-science. They deny what science teaches us about things like origins, right? Because of our belief in the scripture. If you're here today and you have a dog in that fight, uh, I'll just tell you, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's really cool. This is an interesting... Origins in theology is an interesting area of study. I would encourage you to dig into it. I'm willing to geek out with anyone that wants to geek out on it, and I'm dead serious about that. If you're in this space and you're a deeply convicted young earth creationist, I'll, I just want you to hear this. That's a beautiful and valid reading of the text, Right? That's, that's, that's an okay conviction. That is respectful of what the text teaches us. If you're in this space and you are a theistic evolutionist and you believe that, that what we're looking at here is a poetic text that's meant to be understood allegorically and similar to how we understand the Psalms and the wisdom literature and it points to these larger pieces of God's character, but what God teaches us through science is totally awesome. Awesome. You can reconcile that to an inerrant and respectful and beautiful view of the text. Go for it. If you're here and you are, are you ready for this term? I had to look this one up because I couldn't remember it. Where is it? Dang it. I didn't stay close to my notes. Oh, well. 
If you're in this space and you believe in what, what many, what many uh, theologians call old earth creationism, first off, congratulations, because there's like 10 of you. Uh, but second off, <laughs> it's a beautiful, wonderful conviction that, makes, that takes deep respect for the inerrancy, the supernatural preservation of the text, has deep respect for what science teaches about origins and ages and all those things. Beautiful. Those are wonderful things. And I'm here to tell you guys, those are all reconcilable with what we understand of the text. They are. You can have differing convictions on those things and you can disagree on them. And that's an open-handed, okay issue. The reason I name that on the front end and the reason I think that's important for us to name is this. It's beautiful and wonderful to geek out on theology and to do the hard work of figuring out your convictions of what this text means and how you interact that with real life. But I'm telling you guys, the vast majority of the time when there is a standing, loud cultural debate on a given text, it usually is about a secondary matter that differs from the primary important teaching of the text. And I would be sorrowful today if we spent our time debating a cultural argument about the mechanics of creation and missed out on the beauty of what this text is actually pointing to, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You easily, easily get caught up in that debate. And that's the thing that, by the way, that leads to division within the church. It leads to things like Ken Ham and Bill Nye debating on TV, right? And it just creates memes and makes people argue. It doesn't, it doesn't build up the church. And I'll push on this. It doesn't, it doesn't draw people to the gospel. These are secondary, open-handed issues. And again, open invitation. If you want to geek out, hit me up. We'll get out, we'll get a coffee, we'll talk shop about it. Because it's interesting. But it's not the primary thing this text is teaching us. I think what I'm much more concerned about today in our space here is that we would actually listen to what this text is teaching us about God, about the gospel, about the truth of the whole scripture, and about what that means for us. And I really think that a plain and open-minded reading of this text draws us to some really beautiful things, some really important things that allow us to understand the world around us, allow us to understand our place within it. I think what we're going to see as we go through this text, and it's essentially the reason I said all that on the front end, is I want to just ask us, regardless of your conviction in this moment, like regardless if you, if you land in one of those categories, I, like, can we just all agree collectively? That is a secondary issue. So let's set it on the shelf over here for the next 30 minutes. And let's look at this text just a little fresh and see how the Spirit might lead us in it. I think if we do that, what we'll see in this text is a God who is really, 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 really good. Who loves, who loves deeply, who loves with intentionality and design in mind. We'll see a God who loves so much that he designs things and sets them up, hear this church, perfectly. That he has perfection built into his design, built into his love. I think what you'll see in this text, if you let yourself hit it with just some fresh eyes, is that at the end of the day, the Bible describes and we worship a God who is good and who wants what is best for you. It's his heart. It's his heart for you. Now, to get there, 
We're going to look at some of the specifics of this text. And I think there's some really cool stuff in this for us. So essentially, what I want us to start with is this. What's interesting about Genesis 1, I think, in our context is this. Genesis 1, the opening of the Bible, the very opening words of this book that's going to tell us the gospel story, it's going to tell us about who God is and all those things, just assumes God exists. Did you notice that? Genesis 1 is not even slightly interested in proving to you that God exists. Which in our day, in our culture, that kind of maybe feels like a misstep, right? Because we live in a time where it's not a given assumption that people believe God exists. A lot of people around us either doubt God's existence or believe that it can't be proven or or, or actively believe he isn't real. And Genesis 1 is basically just not concerned with engaging much of that. And the reason can be found throughout Scripture, but Romans 1.20 says it pretty, pretty well. Uh, for his invisible attributes, this is speaking of God, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what was made. The Bible's take is that God's existence is pretty much self-evident if you live in reality. <laughs> now, there's a whole lot of people who would disagree with that, but the Bible just doesn't really speak much to that. You live in reality, eh, you know he's there. (laughs) Which is pretty intense. And then you might find yourself in a particular relationship or a particular discipleship or evangelistic relationship where you need to dig a little more into that. But I'll tell you, for our purposes today, I think that's actually helpful. Because by assuming that God exists, assuming that God's existence is self-evident, Genesis 1 invites us to ask some questions that I think are a lot more intimate and I think are a lot more beneficial. By starting with the assumption of God, Genesis 1 allows us to ask questions like this. Okay, so what is this God like? What sorts of things does he do? And what does that mean for me? Right? If you've ever been involved, if you've ever taken like a philosophy of religion class, Debates about God's existence, once again, interesting. Interesting. You should dig into it. You should get on Google. You should read books on that stuff. It is is thought-provoking. It's challenging. But at the same time, it's very easy for those kinds of debates to be very intellectual, very, very compartmentalized away from our actual life, the way we actually live. But when Genesis 1 assumes God exists and just jumps into this creation narrative, it it allows this space to ask some questions that, that I think are much more beneficial in terms of actually engaging your heart, wrapping your life around this gospel of Jesus. What is this God like? What sort of things does he do? What does that mean for me? Do I do I have interaction responsible? Do I need to do something about this, right? And the answers we see in the text are that this God is good. This God is good and he wants what is best for for you. You specifically, you as an individual. Those are some intense answers. Some answers that kind of poke into your actual life. Not just your intellectual life, not just your thought life, but your actual life. Like tomorrow when you, well, I guess tomorrow you're going to get up and barbecue. But Tuesday, when you get up and go to work or go to school or, or do whatever it is retired people do. Watch court shows? Is that, is that it? Every retired person just got really insulted. I'm sorry. <laughs> These kind of questions poke into your, your life, I think, in, in, in some more intense ways. 
So let's talk about this text. There's a couple structural things I want to get at, and, and, and I think this will lead us pretty naturally to where this text is taking us. The first one is this, and this is actually, by the way, connected to some of the debate about this text, but it's what kind of text is Genesis 1? Is it a, is it a narrative Is it a poem? Is it a piece of wisdom literature? This is one of the first questions you ask in Bible study. What kind of text am I reading, right? Am I reading a historical narrative? You read the Gospels differently than you read the Psalms, right? Genesis 1 is interesting because it's it's very unique in its structure. A lot of theologians call Genesis 1 an exalted narrative. And what that means is this. It doesn't quite fit into any of the normative categories we use for studying Scripture. It's not a normative historical narrative. It's not written the way the rest of Genesis is written. It's not written the way Judges is written. It's not written the way Acts is written, like a narrative telling you history. It has all this structure to it. And all this structure is taken directly from Hebrew wisdom literature and poetry. It structures things around parallelism, six different days and how they compare to each other. It structures things around seven The opening and closing lines have seven words in Hebrew. The middle lines have 14 words in Hebrew. The important phrases like, it is good, is said seven times. There's like all these inclusions of these pieces that exist pretty much exclusively within Hebrew poetry and Hebrew wisdom literature. And yet, it's missing some of the really vital structures that would make us able to just easily define it as Hebrew poetry. It sits right in the middle. And I think that's beneficial for us because I think what it tells us is the author of Genesis is handing you a narrative, a story that you should read, should read it pretty much at face value, right? But it's telling you this is an important story. It doesn't want you to read this the way you read the rest of Genesis. They want you to remember this part. And so they put these rhythms and structures into it to make this story normative. By the way, none of that actually answers the question of whether you should take it as a literal historical thing or not. There's a whole bunch of other things around that. But it's important for us that the author wants you to pay special attention to this story, wants this story to be memorable for you. So the way this text engages these questions we have, who is this God? What is he like? What sort of things does he do? What does that mean for me? There's several ways this text, once it kind of hands us this stuff, goes about answering. The first thing we see in this text, and this is simple, guys, but stick with me because we're going to build on this, is that the God of Genesis 1 is a God who creates. He makes stuff, right? He makes lots of stuff. You read through the text, there's nothing at the beginning, at the end there's everything, right? Like, that's that's a pretty large amount of stuff. It's all of reality comes into existence because of God's creative work, right? That's, That's important, It's important in understanding who this God is. He's a God who brings more into existence, who draws things and people around himself, right? But that he doesn't just create. Like we see the creative piece. He speaks, stuff comes into existence. But we see that this God doesn't just create. He creates things that are good. You see this? I feel like this is one of the parts that's easiest for us to skip over as readers today because we live on the other side of the reality of sin. We have no context for understanding what a good creation is the way Genesis 1 describes it. And I want you to to hear this with me, right? 
We're going to get into this next week. But when sin enters the picture, it doesn't just corrupt the human heart. It corrupts the entirety of reality. God changes his creation because of the presence of sin. That's heavy. Things exist in the world now that did not exist in Genesis 1. And so when we read Genesis 1, we read things like, oh, God made stars, he made sky, he made plants, he made animals, and it was good. And we go, yeah, yeah, good, it was good. We think of stars, sky, sun, plants, land, animals, the way we think of it, and go, it's like that, but maybe just like, I don't know, 10% better. Like maybe the squirrels don't steal from your bird feeders, right? Like they smile. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you guys, if you had the ability to put on some VR goggles and get just a picture of creation in Genesis 1. You would recognize it, but you wouldn't recognize it. It would be a brand new experience for you. So similar that you'd be like, yeah, I guess that's what squirrels looked like back then. But so different that you'd go, I had no category for understanding that. Imagine describing a color to someone who was born blind, right? You just don't have a category for a perfect creation. But that's the way this God creates. He creates things that are good and perfect. There is nothing wrong with them. I want to say that part again. When God creates, there's nothing wrong with it. It's lacking nothing. It's good. It's perfect. And then, this God who creates, and who creates things good and perfectly, he doesn't just create things good and perfectly, he then orders them. He puts structure around them. You see this over the course of the days, that God, he creates something, he gives gives it a name, and then he puts it in its place. You see that? He designs things. He doesn't just design the thing, he designs its purpose. This is what this will do. This is what this will do. This piece does this. This will do this. They interconnect and do these things for each other. This God that we see in Genesis 1 creates stuff and people. He creates stuff and people that is good and perfect. And he creates stuff and people that is good and perfect that he has intentions for. That he has design and purpose for. And by the way... That whole thing, it culminates, it comes together in day six when God creates humanity. Now this part, if you know anything about the universe, Kim and I were having this conversation this week talking about like the web telescope and these deep space pictures and stuff like that. Genesis 1 points to this idea that humanity is a special creation, a culmination of the creative act, right? When you think about the grandness of the universe, that seems buck wild. We're talking about the God who invented quasar stars and magnetar stars, who created black holes and ripples through time and space and gravity waves, right? Things of such immense power that we don't have a concept for them, right? But he looks at us And goes, "Mm, that, that's the crown of my creation. That's, that's insane. You know, that's what the text hands us. It says that God, God gives special attention to humanity when he creates them. 
They're not like the rest of the animals. They're made in the image of God. Not, not made as gods, but made like God. And man, we could spend weeks digging into what that, that image of God, the imago Dei, as the theologians call it, what that means. But the, the piece we need to see in this is that for all of the beauty and power and immensity of reality, God takes you and me and says, you get a special place in my creation. You get to be set apart. You're not like the stuff. You're not like the creatures. You're not even like the spiritual realm and the angels. You're like me. You're special. Made in my image. And there's so many beautiful things we could pick apart there. The idea that he makes humans as inherently communal creatures. And God the Father, Son, and Spirit is communal in his nature. The idea that God makes humans with physical embodiments, but also with spiritual selves. Not just bodies like our animals are, and not just spirits like angels are, but these embodied spirits that have this unity within us. Like there's all these beautiful aspects of what this means. But at the end of the day, what we see in Genesis 1 is that the God's creative act from the edges of the universe from black holes and stars all the way down to the core of the earth, to everything here, it culminates in God crowning his creation with people. It's wild. What a privileged status you experience within reality. A human being made in the image of God, set apart. And then I love, I love this piece. Day seven, God finishes it all. He looks at it and he's just like, I'm into it. I like it. And then he just hangs out. He rests. He rests in and amongst his creation. Love that piece. He gets it all together and just goes, it's good. Good job, God. (laughs) And he enjoys it. So this tells us Several things. It digs into these questions for us. We see this God exists, right? The assumption is in there. We see that he's good. He chooses to create. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And what he makes is perfect. Without fault, without failing, without pain, without suffering. God makes things that are good and perfect. But he also has desires, designs for his creation. He puts order and design and purpose into it. He wants, he doesn't just make them good, he wants good for them. Remember that, the creation is good. And the ordering, the design, is a part of the creation. So when God puts purpose and design, the interaction, into the creation, it's good and perfect design and interaction and intention. God doesn't just love his creation, he wants good for them. And this, I think, is the best part of this. Day seven doesn't end in our text. Do you notice that? This part's interesting to me. There's evening, there's morning, day one. There's evening, there's morning, day two. There's evening, there's morning. Day seven doesn't get that. And there's no real reason for this. It's not like day seven didn't have a sunset, right? But I think what God's getting at, I think what the author of Genesis is pointing us to in this piece is this beautiful truth that day seven of creation, right at the beginning, one page into the book, 
is giving you a picture of exactly where this thing is going. Day seven gives you this perfect image of God's actual design for his creation. Here's a reality made perfect, made good, ordered, with nothing wrong, nothing lacking, interacting in relationship and communion and unity with its creator. God is at rest in and around and among his creation. And nothing is wrong and nothing is missing. Guys, that's where the story's going. When we, when we land the story, we're going to be looking at eternity, the eternity that God has promised and designed for his people. And there will be parts of it where you go, huh, that looks a lot like day seven. That's the point. Because when it gets here, when Christ returns, when he restores all things, day seven will not end. There will be no sunset on that. It's where we're headed. So God exists. He's good. He wants what's best for you. And what's best for you is you and him in relationship forever. So, what do we do with that? Right? Like, like this is where the gospel story starts. God is good. He made all things. He made them good and perfect. He's good. He wants what's best for his creation. You included. You, the crown of his creation. He wants what's best for you. His goodness and his good intentions for his creations are implicit in this opening story of the Bible. What do we do with this? I'll tell you guys, this is why starting with sin can be so fundamentally damaging to how we understand the story. Sin is the only context we know. We live on the other side of Genesis 3. We were born into a creation that is broken, that is ruined, that is, that is groaning, awaiting the return of Christ, right? Like that's the context within which we know reality. But when you read Genesis 1, it's this reminder that things were not always this way. This is not how God made it. He didn't set up a gamed system where we were doomed. No, he made it perfect. He made it lacking nothing. And that's where he's taking it. When you start with the creation and you see God's character coming out, you know, the, the Romans 1 passage is good and it you know, gives us this truth I think, that I think really does speak to the human experience, that existence within reality calls the human being to this idea that there's something greater, right? That God's existence becomes evident when you consider the creation. I think there's truth in what the scripture is teaching in that. But it doesn't get you beyond that. It doesn't get you any specifics. Genesis 1 gives you specifics. That creator that is evident in his creation, let me tell you about him. He's good. He loves. He creates things perfect and good and with intention and design. He's good and he wants what's best for his creation. And you, you're the crown of that creation. He wants what's best for you. That's, it's in the text and you can miss that. You don't start with the creation. So let me, let me do this. I want to land today. In fact, if you want to come up, Chris, I'm going I'm to land this in just a second. I want to land today with just essentially this idea. God creates not just like magically. In this text, in Genesis 1, we see that God creates with his voice. Did you catch that part? I didn't really focus on that as we were talking through it. But in Genesis 1, 
we see God speaking. And because of the authority of the voice of God, reality obeys, which is just intense, right? The voice of God says light. The voice of God says plants. God's God's voice, God's decisions carry such authority that reality springs into existence from nothing at the sound of his voice. That's intense, right? As we land, as we, as we we've answer these questions, what is this God like? What does he do? And we think about what does that mean for me? I want you to consider this, church. The same God who created the universe, the same God who loved enough to create, the same God who created perfect, the same God who crowned his creation with humanity for whatever reason, the same God created you. He made you. He designed you. He knit you together. He brought you into this world. The same God that spoke, spoke and stars existed. The same God speaks about you. Consider what the text says. Consider what the God of the universe, the creator God, says about you, church. Yes, God is good. God is the creator. God wants good for his creation. But you, beloved, are a part of that creation. And not just a speck on a ball floating through space in a huge ocean of specks. No, you're special. You're set apart. The crowning part of his creation, made in his image like him, important to him. What does God say to you? What does he say about you? Consider the words of Jesus. Consider the things he says about you. I'm the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They recognize me. They come to me. Consider the end of days. You stand before the judge. And Jesus says, that one is mine. I paid for that one. I I, I, I took those sins. This one is my child. Consider the voice of your God. Saying, no, 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 you are my beloved, my bride. I paid the bride price for you. My feast is prepared. Come and enjoy, enjoy the good that your master has for you. Think of the words the God of the universe uses for you. It's insane. (laughs) But that, that beloved is the goodness of our God very easy, very easy to read a text like Genesis 1 and to make these things kind of abstract and separate from us. Even these beautiful truths. God is real. He's good. He wants what's best for his creation. God is real and he's good and he wants what's best for you. He sees you. He cares about you. He designed you. He ordered you into his creation. And the place he orders you is a high and honorable place. The good he wants for you to be a part of his family, to be redeemed from sin, to be drawn into day seven with him forever. If the voice of God can create stars, 
and you can hear the voice of God for you today, amen? So let's take a few minutes and let's do this. I'm actually just going to ask you, Chris, to go straight into the song, if you don't mind. Chris is going to sing the song to us. I want to encourage you guys, let this song be sung over you. If you want to stand up and sing, go right ahead. We'll have the lyrics up on the screen, those things. But I want to encourage you, take these next few minutes as we get ready to land today, as we get ready to take communion, celebrate our time together. I want you to consider the voice of God and what it says to you, what it says about you. And then just consider what that means about your place in this creation.